0: Yeah
1: i will guide you through the journey what do you say shall we begin
0: a film from sam raimi there's something out there lives out in those woods in the dark something that's come back from the dead
1: Sam Raimi was born in October 23, so I wanted to see one of his films. Now, I've seen many of his films, but I have a complicated relationship with his horror films. One of my older brothers was a horror film buff so i might or might not have seen the first two evil dead when i was still a kid but if i did i didn't remember them at all when i was a teenager i went to see army of darkness with my two best friends without any context whatsoever about the film we didn't know it was a sequel and maybe we didn't even know or like i said remember that much about the first ones and we all hated it. We were so put off by the absurdity and the tone of the film that we walked out of the theater laughing for all the wrong reasons. Despite that, in the years after, I saw and enjoyed most of Raimi's other films, The Quick and the Dead, A Simple Plan, The Gift, and The Spider-Man films. However, I saw Drag Me to Hell with my wife and once again we both hated it, mostly for the same reasons that I remember hating Army of Darkness back when I was a teen. We both didn't like the tone and it just didn't work for us. Regardless, considering how much praise the Evil Dead films get and how little I remember them or if I ever saw them, in recent years I decided to give them a shot with my adult point of view. I saw Evil Dead a couple of years ago and to my surprise, I didn't like it that much. Once again, for the same reasons, the tone always felt off to me, I just didn't jive with it. Being a sort of horror comedy, I never found it too horrific nor too funny, kind of the same way I felt with Drag Me to Hell. Even with this background, I decided to give Evil Dead 2 a shot, considering it's the one that most people bring up as their favorite, but no surprise there again. Despite being labeled as a sequel, Evil Dead 2 plays more like a loose remake or parody of the first one. It features Ash, played by Bruce Campbell, and his girlfriend spending a romantic weekend in a remote cabin, only to end up unleashing various demons that torment them. I'll just say that I really, really wanted to like this, but it just didn't work for me. I know that this film is praised by most cinephiles and horror fans, but I hope that the fact that I've kept going back to Raimi's horror films, despite not liking any of them, shows that I've given him the chance. The tone here is even more comedic than the original, and even though I like a lot of horror comedies, I just don't seem to jive with his style. I do think that Campbell is pretty good as Ash, and the special effects are cool, but other than that, there wasn't much here for me.
0: A film from the 1001 movies you must see before you die list whose ranking includes the number 10.
1: I had a couple of options for this category, but I had already settled for 1936 Sci-Fi Things to Come, which is ranked at 101. However, I had taken a 14-day trial of the Criterion channel at the end of last month, that's how I saw A Man Escape, but I realized that The Phantom Carriage was available, which is ranked at number 10, and I had to take it. I might get around things to come later in the month if I have time, but I had been meaning to watch Phantom Carriage for a long, long time, so I was glad to finally get around to it. The film is from Sweden and is directed and written by Victor Sjostrom. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that right, but uh, he also stars in it. Sjostrom plays David Holm, a drunkard that finds himself face to face with death, which forces him to atone for the mistakes and sins of his past. One of the most notable things of the film is its use of flashbacks. The film features numerous flashbacks, flashbacks within flashbacks and flash forwards as we see what led David to how he is now and his relationship with his wife and kids as well as the life of Edith, a Salvation Army sister that is determined to help him. And the thing is that for a 1921 silent film it does a great job of not being too complicated with all those flashbacks and keeping the flow of the story at a nice pace. The other most notable aspect of the film are its special effects, which are way ahead of its time. Post-production apparently took a long time, five months, which was a long time for that period. As cinematographer Julius Jansson and lab executive Eugene Hellman worked it out with double exposures and multiple layers and whatnot, but they look pretty good even now. The performances are typical of the era, very theatrical and exaggerated, but they're good. I did have some issues with how the relationship between David and Edith is presented. There's an awkwardness in how we are told of her feelings for David, while also trying to help him get back with his wife. If the intention was to build some sort of tension, I don't think it worked that well, and if that wasn't the intention, then was it necessary? But that doesn't take much out of the film, the film does succeed in many other ways, particularly in creating a solid story with a creepy, eerie vibe, definitely an essential for any cinephile.
0: A horror film about an animal or creature.
1: People think science is here,
0: but it is also here. The first time, did you love your experiment? Yes. And the second time? No. I just wanted it over. Then you changed the variables. I was doing it for the wrong reason. Science is not good or bad, Victor. But it can be used both ways. That is why you must always be careful.
1: I was undecided which way to go with this category. One of my first thoughts was to watch Crawl, the recent crocodile film, but I was also asking around for recommendations, especially for creature films from the 50s or 60s. I got some pretty good recommendations from online friends, but eventually my kids ended up deciding for me, and we saw Tim Burton's Frank and Weenie from 2012. The film is a stop-motion animated film in the same vein of Corpse Bride and Coraline, and, this I didn't know, it is a remake of a 1984 short film from Burton himself. The film follows Victor, voiced by Charlie Tehan, a young kid with two obsessions, science and his dog Sparky. When Sparky is hit and killed by a car, Victor uses electricity to resurrect him. Unfortunately, all of his schoolmates go to him for help, resurrecting their own pets, which ends up in not-so-good results. The film is pretty simple and fun for the kids, but it also features a lot of references and homages to classic horror films, obviously like Frankenstein, but also The Mummy, Godzilla, and many others. There's also a character, a professor that inspires Victor, that looks pretty much like Vincent Price. By the way, he's voiced by Martin Landau, who was in Tim Burton's Ed Wood, a film I still haven't seen, and the film also features a lot of talent from other Burton's films. It went on a rider who was in Beetlejuice and Edward Dark Scissorhands, Martin Short from Mars Attacks, Catherine O'Hara also from Beetlejuice and Nightmare Before Christmas. But anyway, like I said, the film is fun for the kids. And if you're an adult into classic horror, you'll enjoy the homages. So check it out.
0: A film from the 1990s. There's someone. Good Tag.
1: Good Tag. Bitte entschuldigen Sie die Störung. Ich komme von nebenan. Ach, das ist ein wunderbares Galloway, nicht wahr? Das ist gefährlich, das ist aber schnell! Schober!
0: Ah! Ah! Wollen Sie jemanden anrufen? Die Rettung? Oder die Polizei? Warum tun Sie das?
1: So, bitte. Taking advantage of that criterion channel trial, I went with Michael Haneke's original Funny Games from 1997. I've heard good things about this, actually both versions of the film. For those that don't know, Haneke remade his own film for American audience in 2007, but I wanted to get to the original first. The film follows a family that goes on vacation to their lake house and end up being terrorized by two young men. This film is a tough watch. The film is not gory or graphically violent, but there's a lot of distressing and disturbing psychological violence as the two men, played by Arno Frisch and Frank Gearing, play numerous ruthless games with the family. The performances from both actors is excellent as you see the casualness with which they engage in these acts, the quote-unquote banality of evil, so to speak. I don't want to spoil too much for anyone that hasn't seen it, but in the end, we see that there's no real motive for them to do this, it's just the thrill of the violence, which makes it all the more disturbing. The family couple are played by Ulrich Mühe, who I had seen in the excellent The Lives of Others, and Suzanne Lothar. Both are pretty good too, but Lothar in particular is excellent. She conveys so much with her facial expressions, her eyes, the fear, the shame and despair. It's an excellent performance. But aside from the performances, the other most notable thing from the film is Haneke's direction. Two things in particular, first, he uses a lot of static and long shots that frequently forces the audience to wallow on the aftermath of the violence. Second is the way that he crosses the line between reality and fiction, most notably in how Paul, the character played by Frisch, frequently breaks the fourth wall to address the audience, I've read that Haneke wanted to make a point about violence in the media and draws the audience into the same games that the men are playing with the family. I'm not sure that making a violent film is the best way to send a message against violence, but overall, I don't care about Haneke's intentions. As far as I'm concerned, the film is thrilling and intense, well-acted and directed, and worth a watch.
0: Any film that starts with the letters S or T. 岩田
1: For this category, I went with Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood from 1957. This is a film I had been meaning to see for a long, long time, but never had the chance but once again, thanks to that criterion channel trial, I could finally check this box from my watchlist. The film is a rather loose adaptation of William Shakespeare's Macbeth, but transposed to feudal Japan. It follows Washizu, played by Toshiro Mifune, a samurai commander that finds himself in the midst of political turmoil, assassinations, and betrayal at the behest of his wife Asagi, played by Isuzu Yamada. I've never been that familiar with Shakespeare's work, mostly because of lack of exposure here, but casually I had seen 2015's Macbeth recently, so the story was more or less fresh in my mind. But maybe because of that lack of familiarity, I didn't mind the liberties that Kurosawa took with the story. I read some complaints about the changes in the last act in particular, but I don't care. I thought the film was excellent. Not only was it thrilling and dramatically powerful, but the performances from Mifune and Yamada were great. I thought Yamada started a bit iffy in the first act, but as the film progressed, damn, she had some great moments. Mifune was superb as usual. I really loved the energy and passion he brings to his roles. But aside from the performances, what impressed me the most was Kurosawa's direction. I thought it was flawless. The framing, the use of shadows and lights, perspective, it was mind-blowingly good. There were several shots I wish I could frame and hang in my house. This is my fourth Kurosawa film after Jojimo, Rashomon, and Seven Samurai, and I think it's probably my favorite of the four. Excellent film and a must-see for everyone. A
0: film about a virus. What was it like? Quarantine. No, before that.
1: Why don't you Everyone says it's hell. It's like being trapped inside your body, fighting to stop yourself. But what they don't talk about is the moment when you stop fighting, when you start to just go with it. What if there was a zombie outbreak, but we managed to find a cure? How would the cured reintegrate into society? Can they? Will they be welcomed by their relatives and friends and the community itself, regardless of what they did? That is a premise from the 2017 Irish film called The Cured from director and writer David Frame. I can tell you that as soon as I read the synopsis for this, I knew I had to see it. The film focuses mostly on Senan, played by Sam Keeley, who is received at the home of his sister-in-law, Abby, played by Ellen Page, who is a struggling journalist. Abby was married to Senan's brother, who was killed during the outbreak, so Senan's release opens up some wounds between them, but he still manages to connect with his young nephew, Killian. The other main focus of the story is with Connor, played by Tom, Bogan, Lawlor, a friend of Senna and from quarantine, who used to be a lawyer and politician, but is now working as a cleaner. As you can see from that introduction, I had very high expectations for this, and even though it is still a competent and well-done effort, I can't help but feel a bit disappointed about it. The film starts basically as a drama, which I have no issue with, as we see the characters struggling to adapt to their new lives. During this time, it manages to raise some interesting questions like the ones I asked at the beginning about how could a former zombie, so to speak, could retake his or her life and how will the families of their victims receive them. Unfortunately, the film drops the thought-provoking nature of its story halfway through and trades it for easy scares and clumsy characterization. Despite setting up a decent connection between Senan and Connor, which could have been used for a more emotional payoff when their paths clash, the writer chooses to abruptly antagonize Connor, setting him up as some sort of bad guy, which is a shame. The shifts in the way connor is portrayed and how his relationship with Senan evolves were too abrupt that it feels as if they were left on the cutting room floor also despite establishing the cured as outcasts of society while drawing some obvious parallels to xenophobia and racism the writer undermines his own message by saying you know they're kind of bad in the end Aside from that, there are a lot of subplots that are also set up, but then brushed over or completely dropped, like Connor's rise as a revolutionary leader or his attempt to return to his family, the supposed connection between the infected, Abby's job as a journalist, the doctor that's trying to find the final cure, the evil sergeant that doesn't believe in their rehabilitation, or the fate of the thousands of infected that have been resistant to the cure, which is brought up frequently but never delved into. In the end, the film is not at all bad, the performances are all pretty good and the direction is solid, but for such a compelling premise, there were so many roads they could have gone through, so many things they could have done, that it's a pity they couldn't fully work it out. It is still worth a watch, but don't walk in with high expectations like I did.
0: A post-1990s horror film made for under $5 million.
1: Be careful where you walk.
0: Is that sign say death though
1: be careful what you mock dude this legend is bogus the monsters aren't real and most importantly be careful when you knock
0: Trigger or treat. because if you don't on halloween night three unholy
1: creatures will come out to bite the barn this is a category I've done other years and it's one that I really enjoy because it often gives me a chance to see some obscure little known films. I think this is how I discovered films like A Ghost Story, Lake Mongo, and Crush the Skull, all pretty good films. So while looking for an option, I stumbled upon this 2016 film titled The Barn, with a budget of approximately forty thousand dollars. It more than applies for this category. Written and directed by Justin Seaman, the film follows a group of friends that inadvertently resurrect a deadly Halloween curse in their small town. The curse manifests itself through three deadly creatures, a scarecrow, a pumpkin man, or jack-o'-lantern, and a miner referred to as the Boogeyman. Apparently, Siemen based the story in a comic he wrote when he was a kid, which is kind of cool. The film is set in the 1980s, so the director uses a distinctive visual style to evoke the era. He even made an effort to make the visuals look like the film was shot in the 80s, and there is clear attention on the character design and overall ambience. Unfortunately, the disjointed story, the shaky dialogue, and amateurish performances stop it from being anything more than a fun curiosity. The film tries to follow the traditional 80s template by trying to set up a group of four friends, kind of like what Stranger Things does by homaging films like The Goonies or Stand By Me. There's another recent film, Summer of 84, that tries to draw the same parallelisms. But anyway, although the actors that play the friends have decent chemistry, their performances leave a lot to desire. The script is also very pedestrian and predictable, with characters making stupid decisions that just feel spelled out by the writer. Hey, are you coming with us? No, I'll stay here and check out this creepy barn. Or, what's that sound? Oh, it must be Russell. Let me check it out. The story is also a bit of a mess, with the film starting with a flashback that is clumsily integrated into the plot later. The main character, Sam, played by Mitchell Mussolino, also happens to be a Halloween freak that lives by these weird rules for the celebration. And although the script makes an effort to remind us of them and integrate them into the plot, the execution is very poor. There's also some nonsense about him learning to grow up, but that's also not executed very properly. The film does feature some schlocky but fun splatter and gore, and overall it's inoffensive enough to at least be somewhat enjoyable, particularly if you're an 80s horror buff. I read that Seaman is trying to get the funds for a sequel, and that most of the surviving cast has agreed to return. If it comes up, I'll probably shake it out anyway. Once our journey ends, at least for now, remember that October is still upon ourselves and we still have 8 categories to cover, We are.
0: <laughs>
1: a film with the number 10 in its title. A horror film. A horror film in a foreign language. A film with the word dead or death in its title. A film that features baseball prominently, a film with a notable character from the clergy, a film from Nigeria, a film with a farm animal in its title. So if you have any recommendation for those, contact me, if you dare. Via Twitter at TIFCGT T-H-I-E-F-C-G-T, or Letterboxd as 12 Have you had enough? No? So let's hear some
0: useless movie trivia.
1: Did you know that Gene Hackman was set to star and possibly direct The Silence of the Lambs? Turns out that Hackman partnered with Orion Pictures to acquire the rights for Thomas Harris' novel. It is not clear what role Hackman was supposed to star in. Some sources say Jack Crawford, Clarice's boss. Other sources say Hannibal Lecter. Unfortunately, he withdrew from the project. It is rumored he didn't want to follow a dark film like Mississippi Burning with an even darker film. So that was it. And that was all for...
0: Useless Movie Trivia.
1: So that's all for episode 23 of this monthly movie loot Halloween edition. Thanks for listening and hope you all have a one
0: You. There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. For instance, number one, you can never have sex. <laughs> no, no, no. Big no-no! Big no Sex equals death, okay? Number two, you can never drink or do drugs. No, the sin factor. It's a Sin, it's an extension of number one. And number three, Never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, say, I'll be right back, because you won't be back. I'm getting another beer. You want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back!